In the sermon this morning, for the sermon this morning, the text is quite long. I love this text. It goes from John chapter 9, verses 1 through 41. So I'm going to read this in three distinct sections throughout the sermon. This whole passage is linked to even more messaging that Jesus does in chapters 10 and 11 of the Gospel of John, but we won't read all of that. What Jesus is doing in all of these texts, including this one for this morning, is announcing through the acts of the things that he does and the words that he says that there is a, a whole new dimension of a new community that's being formed. There has been a religious community. Now there is going to be a new spiritual community that's going to do the work of God in grace-filled and wondrous ways. So the gospel passage for now comes from John 9, 1 through 12. I invite you to follow along on the screens or in your Bibles. Of these three sections, this first one is an introduction to Jesus healing a man born blind. The second piece of the text from this same chapter is basically the, 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 the struggles that Pharisees have with, with what has happened here. And the third is the final piece of, the, of John telling us the meaning of spiritual blindness and spiritual seeing. John chapter 9, 1 through 12 to begin. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, said Jesus, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am the world and in the world, I am the light of the world. After saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash, so I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. Well, the story is pretty clear. Jesus and his disciples were traveling along one day, they saw a blind man. The text tells us that the man was blind from birth, but we don't know how they knew that. The awareness of the man by the disciples caused them to kind of revert to what they knew about how things worked, how they had been taught in the tradition of their faith. And so they asked the question they had long heard others ask, Jesus, what happened here? Who sinned? Was it this man in utero 
or was it his parents? Who sinned here? Now, we would find that question both odd and rude to ask the question about a man born blind, lifelong blindness sitting there, and in the presence of him ask the question, you know, who sinned here? Him before birth or his parents? But in the world of the first disciples, under the religious teachings of the time, who whenever something went wrong, wherever sin or hurt or injury or extreme difficulties, anything bad happened to a person, somebody sinned to make that happen. That was the common religious understanding. Somebody is to blame. Somebody did something terribly wrong. And we need to be able to assign the blame, at least be able to discuss it. The blame fell squarely on the person who was suffering. So it's so hard for us to imagine that this awful situation of this man born blind, who somehow bizarrely might have sinned in his mother's womb or was the victim of the sins of his own parents, Somehow this man had to pay in lifelong suffering for that sin. If that sounds unbelievably cruel, and it does, maybe we should stop for a moment and think of how sometimes we Christians will hear of someone's plight. Perhaps they've gone through a divorce, or we hear about or observe the wanderings of some teenager who's misbehaving. Or we see someone who has an illness and we think, well, that was brought about by their unhealthy habits. If they had only done something different, that wouldn't have happened. And we say, in a different way, not so much what maybe their parents did wrong, although we ask that question of straying children sometimes, but we say, who sinned here? Who did wrong here? I hope I'm not the only one here who has occasionally had those thoughts or even vocalized them. I wonder what they did wrong. Well, that's the same issue the disciples were wrestling with. But Jesus in this account steers the conversation in a whole different direction. He said something dramatic is going to happen here. You wait and see. Because what had happened to this man was intended for God's glory. Nobody's at fault here. You just wait and see what's going to happen with this man. So in this odd telling, Jesus spits on the ground. He mixes dirt with saliva. And then in a very peculiar command, after placing it on the blind man's eyes, in a very peculiar command, he tells the blind man to go to a place called the Pool of Siloam to wash. I find this story utterly arresting, if for no other reason than I've had the privilege of seeing where the Pool of Siloam is. I've been to that place. It's in a ravine. It's down a hill. It's on a rocky path. It's hard for me to imagine. I don't fully understand this. Why Jesus would say to a man born blind who has been sitting there forever, somehow I want you to stumble your way to the Pool of Siloam. There's some faith connection there I do not fully get, but he did. He located the pool of Siloam. He found that place. He washed, and you know the story. Somehow this man got there, 
and came back seeing. God's miracle was accomplished. The second part of the story is John chapter 9, beginning at verse 13 through verse 34. And again, this is a long passage, so hear this wonderful, truthful account. Hear it as if it's a story that's being told. They brought the Pharisees, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had been born blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he is a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked? Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? His parents replied, we know he is our son, the parents answered. And we know he was born blind. But how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had already decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That's why his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. The second time, they summoned the man who had been born blind. Give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I have told you already and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want me to become his disciple too? That's a great line, by the way. You want me to become his disciple too? You tried to drive me ever more toward him? Then they hurled insults at him and said, You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out. Well, how would you like to go through that inquisition? The Pharisees had been summoned. They had been gathered from the four corners to come to grill this poor fellow about this event that had happened to him. They wanted to establish first whether this was indeed the same man, whether he was indeed born blind, and they kept interrogating him over and over and over again. Maybe you're like me and like to watch occasionally one of those detective shows where they 
where they find the guy they call the perp, you know? And they take the perp to the station house and they put him in one of those grungy rooms with half-drank used cups of coffee all over the place. One little cell and it's hot and the lights are high. Place is dingy. And they play good cop, bad cop, and they interview the perp. And they try to get the perp to stumble over his words and basically make a confession. It's an intense scene. Well, this biblical scene is like that. They think they've got a perp. They think they've got somebody who broke some religious law, both Jesus and the blind man. And at some point, the blind man makes a, a, a tactical mistake in the interview process. The perp finally confesses to something that, at least for his parents, it would have been better left unsaid. He says, oh, by the way, he healed me on the Sabbath. Wish you hadn't have said that, his parents are saying. You see, now the opposition really builds, and it's getting very intense. When they send for the, par- the, for the, for the poor man's parents, these people now are in a real bind. You see, they're faithful Jews. They didn't want to be crossed with the Pharisees. They didn't want to be kicked out of the synagogue they belonged to. So they try to answer the questions factually, but briefly. In verse 25, the man, doubtless dazed by all that's happened to him, finds himself defending Jesus. And he blurts out against the Pharisees who have called Jesus now a particular sinner because he healed this man on the Sabbath, as bizarre as that seems. The man finally just blurts out, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. What I do know is this. I was blind, and now I see. You think that might kind of end the conversation, but it doesn't. But that's a wonderful scene. Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? All of this second reading gives me pause about what we religious people do, usually very unintentionally, to drive away irreligious people from our presence. Pastor John Burke of Gateway Church in Austin, Texas, wrote a book a few years ago called No Perfect People. No Perfect People Allowed was the actual name of the book. And there he describes the kind of people that a church will attract in this modern age if we really open our arms wide and embrace them as earnest seekers and inquirers of the Christian faith. Burke reminds us that more than in previous generations, the inquirers of our time will come to us or will come to church, will begin the process of starting faith as broken people. They have lived in homes that were usually broken. They don't have a trust of institutions, whether it's the government or school or church. They don't naturally Um, understand that the limits the Bible places on personal conduct are for our best good, for our best lives. They just see them as unnecessary restrictions. They haven't been around too many people who faithfully kept these personal lifestyle restrictions and did them with joy and gladness. So they haven't seen this very much. They have been around some people who they felt displayed an an aura of religious superiority, 
But they'll be something like the blind man in our story this morning. When they come to faith or when they come to the initial stages of faith, when they come as earnest inquirers to people like us, they won't know the rules. They won't feel the least bit comfortable. I'm not drawing a direct line between the Pharisees of Jesus' day and modern-day Christians. But it's impossible to not see in this text a warning that if Jesus prompts someone to discover faith, it's not helpful for us or anyone to examine them, to, to grill them about their personal faults or their experience or who sinned or who didn't sin. Unlike the Pharisees or even the disciples still at this stage of faith, we have to move toward them, not away from them, certainly not against them. We have to remember not to assign blame. We have to remember not to ask the question, how did all of this happen? And tell us about all of your sins. What we need to do is embrace them with the love of Christ. The results of that kind of embracing are then told in John chapter 9, verses 35 through 41. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, and when they found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Who is he, sir? the man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, You have seen him? In fact, he is the one speaking with you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, What? Are we blind too? Jesus said, If you were blind... You would not be guilty of sin, but now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. Jesus didn't score any points with the Pharisees in that last response. The Pharisees had had it. They'd had it with the formerly blind man and his newfound faith. They had completely had it. This was an embarrassment to them. This was a difficulty for them. They tossed him out on the street and would have nothing more to do with this newly minted heretic in their midst. Then we see in the passage that Jesus comes alongside him, completes the healing process. His he, the healing of his eyes had already happened. Now what we've just read is the healing of his soul. This is a man wholly knit together by the God who does the work just like that. Imagine with me for a moment how you would have responded to the blind man. Perhaps imagine better with me how you might have responded recently to a situation in which you were tempted to assign assign blame to someone or to become agitated with God and blame him for an ongoing malady or mess in your own life. We do that, you know, all of us. We blame God. We want to assign blame to other people. When things don't go wrong, we look for somebody to blame. Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think so. But I sometimes find myself trapped in, hopefully, mercifully, a brief cycle of 
blame and shame and then one that leads to increased faith and increased reliance on God. But as followers of Jesus, we're probably all called to wrestle with that one. One of the texts for this lectionary read for the lectionary readings this morning is the 23rd Psalm. Personally, it's one that many of us remember. It's one that's burned into my head gratefully and in times of distress I can play that over and over again as a pastor I've spoken that over the words of a dying person numerous times the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want the NIV has it with a slight difference the Lord is my shepherd I lack nothing He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod, your staff. They comfort me. Imagine again, you're the blind man in this story. Your life has been one of unremitting darkness. You've sat at the same place day after day. And the way you make your living is to beg coins from those who walk by you. Some people toss a couple of shekels in your little basket. Some people just walk by. A few walk by and mutter things against you, including, I wonder what he did wrong, or you sinner, what did you do to cause this to happen? Some of them cuss him out. Some of them just treat him with contempt. They all, all of them that walk by, think that either you or your parents did something to put you in this predicament. So after many years of being in this desperate place, you're pretty sure you are to blame for this sightless situation you're in, poor and miserable. If it's not your fault, it's your parents. And after all, they go down to the first Pharisee synagogue down the street. That's what they would tell you. They believe that, that somebody's sin caused this misery. There's a strange, sinful brew in your family tree. Somebody did something really wrong, and somebody had to pay. I guess it had to be you. And since everyone else puts the blame on you or your parents, you believe it. But then one day you encounter a man named Jesus. Your world is completely upended. Suddenly you're healed. You aren't lost anymore. You have both your vision and a loving shepherd to guide you through life. Everything has changed. You lack nothing. Compared to your life before, you lack absolutely nothing. And though your life has been radically changed, and it has been radically changed, it's not going to be problem-free. You've sat around so long, you have to basically relearn how to walk well. And all the sights you see are just dizzying. There's all the lights and all the brightness of it. And the sun is particularly harsh. And all of these things you now have to adjust to. 
And then there are those people, those obnoxious people you have to explain yourself to over and over and over again. Oddly, you're a minor celebrity for a season, a curiosity. But certainly the Pharisees aren't going to befriend you. After all, you've been healed, and they've had nothing to do with it. Who do they blame now for your blindness? You've messed with their mental gymnastics about how the world works, but you have the Lord as your shepherd now. You lack nothing. You lack now absolutely nothing. Perhaps you're here this morning and have been blamed for something that's not your fault. It's just not your fault. Or perhaps you're on the other side of the equation. Perhaps you've stumbled into the mistaken notion of blaming someone you know, perhaps even someone close to you, for the malady or chaos that is their life. Perhaps there's some truth to it. Perhaps they did make a mess of their life. But our text tells us today it's not our place to be in judgment of them. Our job is to love them as God loves them. Or perhaps you're a person who constantly replays a tape that goes around and around in your head about the mistakes you've made or the wrongs you've suffered or the wounds you've experienced or all the things you don't have that you wish you had. The 23rd Psalm speaks to you and to me. You lack nothing because the Lord is your shepherd. So let him lead you to the calm waters. It might not be the pool of Siloam, but it will be wherever God needs to lead you, to this place of the calm waters, where you become healed and be made whole, where you find the Lord in an entirely new way. May you believe the closing words of Psalm 23. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Would you pray with me? Lord God, this is our great promise. Whatever has come our way, whatever mistakes, whatever wrongdoing, whatever disabilities, whatever pain, and those things are very real. We, the people of God, who have declared by faith that we believe in you, much as the blind man has said, we are able to say, you are our shepherd. We, I, lack nothing. I need nothing else. I have your guidance. We have your love. We have your power. Lord, we give you thanks for this account from John for the new community Jesus created, for the privilege of being a part of it, we give you thanks. In his glorious name we pray. Amen.